Again, I'm a big believer in my Forex growth plan. You buy well, you choose a good location, a right market, some really good behavioral logic, and come back and renovate later. And for me, I tend to do you know, 15 or 20 year renovations later on in the piece where I can add more value to my own assets without necessarily buying just a new asset and trying to add value to it. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, another code cracker. We're going to dig into how to create more wealth for you by understanding some of the rules of investing. Yes, investing does come with rules that we should live by. As such, it is a well-trodden path And I think today is the day to re-highlight many of the rules that we need to understand when it comes to building a portfolio and creating wealth out of property. Let's measure what actually matters when it comes to property investing. And as such, today we're going to crack this very important series of codes. So welcome aboard. If it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome aboard to the Urban Property Investor. Just remember, play the show in double speed. And of course, if it's your first time tuning in, well, just remember all of the shows are actually episodes or lessons in one way, shape or form. So feel free to dart back to the beginning and binge the Open Property Investor. I'm sure you'll learn something about real estate perhaps you have not heard in the past. Hey, let's kick off the show, the rules of investing. We're going to tackle 12 of them today and hopefully you'll walk away from this podcast with some comprehension as to what may actually be the best practical way for you to get ahead through real estate. You may have heard of some of the rules before. I've certainly mentioned a few of them in the past and uh, we're going to tackle some of the more important ones. Now, on my last podcast, I mentioned that Quite often, many people choose to be spreadsheet real estate investors. And as such, in this very changing world of human design, we should really approach real estate with a little bit more understanding about what actually people want to invest in. I guess spending good money chasing pennies just doesn't make sense to me in the real estate marketplace these days. And of course, Robert Kiyosaki, the famous author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, says we all have almost a a poor mindset, a middle-class mindset, and a rich mindset. And if we take a poor mindset into the real estate marketplace, we're probably going to get burnt. And as such, some of the best real estate moving in the market at the moment, getting the best capital growth We kind of need a rich person's mindset. So I think it's pretty critical to understand and spinning off the back of my last episode that we don't necessarily want to be spreadsheet investors. I know, for example, spreadsheet developers get absolutely caned in the real estate marketplace. Today, the best developments are very much molded around what human beings want. Some of the best investments are exactly the same. The tried and true investments and high-performing real estate in the market is very humanistic in its design. So we don't necessarily just want to work off the rules of running a spreadsheet to comprehend uh, what to invest in. However, when it comes to understanding some of the better ideas around what to look for when it comes to rules, I want to go through several of them with you. And some of them are designed around more our human behaviors. Some of them link to the idea of what we should consider a red flag on a spreadsheet. So we want to 
mix the worlds together. We want to be very practical. Some of the rules relate to us, some relate to property, and some relate to cash flows as to how we analyze real estate. So now we've kind of pre-framed the show, let's kick into some of the rules which are critical and critical to being a good property investor. I think obviously we have to start with rule number one, which is don't lose money. And uh, Warren Buffett famously expresses that this is the most really critical rule of being an investor of any type. We want to make some decisions which last the test of time. Now, for property investing, we know that really short-term investing is anything less than 12 uh, 12 years, medium-term 13 to 20 years, and 21-plus years is actually long-term investing. So we want to set ourselves up to invest over the longer period. And I think uh, if we don't sort of recognize what that actually looks like, that real estate is a long distance sport, we may just set ourselves up to fail. So we need to understand that rule number one, don't lose money. And Warren Buffett has that famous saying, which you've heard me mention before, if the market was to shut down for 10 years, would you be happy with the underlying asset you own? As such, I think it is the most critical rule in real estate. Today, how that rule interfaces with the real estate economy for me very much is around smart economics. We're living in the knowledge economy. And as such, what I've seen with coronavirus, the market actually has shut down. What hasn't shut down is the knowledge economy. The knowledge economy doesn't matter if it's working from the beach, working from a home office or working from a CBD. As such, I think rule number one is critical, critical. And for me, really where I'm investing is primarily where a knowledge worker would be living. And a lot of that links to rule number one, uh, don't lose money. Now, the second rule is the first rule. Rule number two is don't lose money. And I say that in jest, but it is absolutely true. This thing called money making and investment comes with an air of volatility. Yes, every investment carries volatility in one way, shape or form. And property investment is no different. I think when it comes to volatility, you have to be able to comprehend the volatility index, which I've mentioned before. The volatility index is just that on any given day, real estate can swing and it can swing as large as 10%. Uh, anything over and above that and you're in the lose money section of the marketplace. In other words, on the day of sale, real estate, uh, if it was worth $500,000 could easily sell for four fifty dollars or $550,000. That's the 10% volatility range of real estate. Anything over, uh, well, underneath that four fifty dollars mark in that example, you know, you're technically in a place where, you know, your real estate potentially is going in the wrong direction. So you need to question what is actually happening. Anything outside the volatility index is really, again, a struggle when it comes to rule two, which is don't lose money. Rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, don't lose money. Just understand the volatility index of real estate, which uh, for me is around a 10% variation. It's just the way real estate works. Now, if you were to go to rule number two and go to a small regional community, the volatility of that community and the variation of its ups and downs is far wider than, for example, a you know blue ribbon suburb in a major city. 
Blue Ribbon Suburb in a major city can have a 10% volatility index. A regional community can be sometimes, and I've seen this unfold, where real estate has lost 80% in value, 80%. So again, what we want to understand when it comes to the rules of investment, the metrics uh, to measure is that we want to be in an unvolatile marketplace, which is really rule two. Rule one, don't lose money, invest in modern economics. Rule two, don't lose money, invest in less volatile areas. Rule number three is actually known as rule 72. Yes, Rule number three is rule 72. Is that going to wig everyone out? Uh, I'm going through 12 rules here and uh, they all have different names. And as such, I think rule 72 is probably the most, uh, one of the most interesting, right? And that is the idea that real estate is driven through compounding growth. So if you buy a property today, And let's say it's, I don't know, a million dollars and then it gets uh, 10% growth. It's all of a sudden $1.1 million. But then the next time it gets more growth, it's not the million dollars growing. It's actually the compound of now the new value, which is $1.1 million. Compounding growth is described as the eighth wonder of the world. Einstein described it as that. It really is incredible. As such, there is a rule behind the idea of compounding growth, and it is known as Rule 72. Actually, how it works, it's a mathematical equation. So you take the number 72, you divide it by the capital growth rate of the neighborhood. And that will tell you how quickly that real estate will double in value. So let's say we had a $100,000 property for easy maths. Uh, It has a capital growth rate of 5% in the neighborhood. We simply uh, take the number 72, hence rule 72, divide it by 5, which is the... Uh, capital growth rate of the neighborhood, fundamentally the compounding growth rate. Uh, and we would see that that equals basically 15 years. So for a property at a double in value and a 5% growth rate using rule 72, the $100,000 property would become a $200,000 property in 15 years. Now, when you think about it, this is where a lot of people, again, potentially put that poor person's mindset hat on that Kiyosaki describes. The reality is the $100,000 property, uh, it is doubling in value in 15 years in this example. However, the chunks of wealth in that are very limited. If you then took a million-dollar property and you applied the same logic, obviously in 15 years it will become a $2 million property. But actually, bigger deals make more money faster, more actual money. And even though they compound at the same rate, the actual dollar figure of bigger deals just makes more money quicker, which can be used faster on other assets. And uh, ultimately, that does mean that some, in some contexts, bigger deals make people richer faster. A-grade real estate makes people wealthier quicker than D-grade real estate, just because of the mathematics behind it. And uh, Rule 72 is a cracker, and quite often you can look at the past performance of a suburb and check out what its growth rate has been 
and apply that to rule 72. Generally, though, I choose 5%. And the reason I choose 5%, I think it really sets the right level of expectation that a property, if bought right at the right time of its cycle, will take about 15 years to compound on itself to double in value. A lot will unfold in that 15 years. That journey in itself is uh, really what we would refer to as a medium-term journey in real estate. But I teach the idea in my Five Cities, Five Properties plan that really over a 15-year period, we should expect a result of a property compounding on itself using a very middle-of-the-road growth rate of 5%. It, of course, can be lower and, of course, can be higher. It's up to you how you use Rule 72. If you applied, for example, a 10% uh, growth rate to real estate, the example I used of the $100,000 property, it would become a $200,000 property in basically 7.2 years instead of uh, 14.4 years, which I've rounded up to 15 years. So again, um, past performance is not a indicator of future performance. And sometimes I think the best way to do this is just use rule 72, but also apply the 5% rule as the compounding growth formula. All right, what's the next rule? Rule four. Uh, I'm going to go with the 1030 rule. Now, the 1030 rule is a rule that I use. Um, It basically is that most people forget with real estate when they're analyzing real estate on the spreadsheet that real estate also is a deteriorating asset. In other words, the dwelling we buy is going to go backwards. And because it is a real thing that people live in, it needs to be maintained. It is very different to buying shares in Amazon. You do not necessarily need to inject capital to prop up the actual uh, property of Amazon. Um, However, seeing as we own the real estate, we're going to continually need to keep it looking good and fresh and nice for people to live in. And obviously, that is known as Capital Works. Now, for strata properties, a lot of your strata fees, uh, you have uh, two kind of versions of strata fees. You have a sinking fund and an admin fund. The admin fund goes into sort of daily operational costs, you know, water, power, uh, gardening, things like that. And then the sinking fund usually goes to a thing called capital costs. In other words, after 10 years, the property is going to have to be painted. It is going to have to have uh, some repairs done to it. And so quite often, the logic of what strata is, is lost on people, particularly when they're buying freehold assets. They forget that though uh, there is no strata fee as such or uh, retained uh, sinking fund, they actually are going to at some point have to inject capital to bring the property to a better standard. So, I use rule four, which is the 1030 rule. For every 10 years, add around $30,000 worth of capital costs to inject in a property that is around $500,000. So for every $500,000 the property is, uh, or, or, uh, the, the cost of the property, if it's a half a million dollars, every 10 years, you want to be injecting around $30,000 to improve the value of that asset. Now, if you're buying a 50-year-old property that's five decades 
And if that property is sub $500,000 and it really has never had any capital costs spent on it, then it's very probable to bring that property back to life is going to be about $150,000. For every 10 years, that's the 10 part. You need $30,000 to breathe life into real estate. So if it's a 30-year-old property, that's three times 10. Uh, That's basically $30,000 times three decades. It is $90,000, the 1030 rule. Now, I love this rule because, again, when I'm analyzing real estate, I can activate capital costs uh, and understand where I sit. More modern properties, obviously less capital costs. Uh, New properties, fundamentally no initial capital costs. Older properties, I've got a methodology which I'm using, which is the 1030 rule. Now, there is another way to look at the rule, uh, which is known as the 1% rule. Basically, the best way to understand the 1% rule is every single year, 1% of the asset value needs to be put aside for future capital costs. So if you had a $500,000 property, 1% of that is $5,000. Every year, you need to obviously factor in that a $500,000 property is going to need around $5,000 spent on it to maintain it in a good state. Now, that obviously doesn't need to happen in one year. And after 10 years, though, you may need to be spending that kind of money. New paint, new carpet, new stove, new dishwasher, uh, new fencing, um, you know, you might want to upgrade some things like solar. So I use the 1030 rule, but certainly other property professionals use the 1% rule. The reason I use the 1030 rule, I think uh, if you buy well in the beginning, you can minimize your future capital costs. However, a lot of people use the 1% rule. Why you use, for example, the 1% rule on all properties is if you are buying a million dollar property, it is uh, likely that, for example, it needs a better kitchen than a $200,000 property. The $200,000 property, if it needed a new kitchen down the track, may just need a $10,000 kitchen. However, the million dollar property, which has become 1.5 million, may need a $50,000 kitchen. So the 1% rule basically works off the fact that the more expensive the asset is really, the, uh, the more you're going to need to make that asset look really good over time. And uh, as such, uh, some people use the 1% rule. I tend to use the 1030 rule just because I believe that, uh, you know, I can do it more efficiently than others because I buy better than others and I coach people to buy better than others. So we've done some rules so far. The first rule, don't lose money. The second rule, don't lose money. The third rule, rule of 72. The fourth rule, the 1030 rule, sometimes known as the 1% rule. And now we're up to rule five. Are you enjoying the rules? I hope so. The rules are critical to creating success out of real estate. Rule number five is the 50-30-20 rule. Yes, the 50-30-20 rule. This is a rule which is more about you, more about budgeting. The 50-30-20 rule is the idea that 50% of our income from our job really needs to go to, for example, spending on our on basically our needs, our obligations, things like perhaps our mortgage or rent or utilities or uh, you know school fees, things like that, right? So fifty percent of what we what we earn and take home is really goes to this idea of running our world. But then we're left with another fifty percent. 
And that 50% is the 30 and the 20. Hence why the rule is 50, 30, 20. 30% of, uh, of, of what we have can go to having some fun, enjoying holidays, um, entertainment, um, socializing, but 20% of it needs to be invested and put into income producing assets and goes to the idea of uh, fundamentally buying debt. Now, uh, the 50-30-20 rule is a great rule because the reality is you can morph the 50-30-20 rule because at a very minimum, the rule states that around 20% of what we earn needs to go back into building wealth. But if we're spending 30% on getting pissed and going on holidays, that means we can actually up the ante if we want to when it comes to putting more money into the marketplace to create more wealth. And I've certainly gone through the 50-30-20 rule myself. And, you know, I think some of the the best things that I learned very young in life is how to be a really good budgeter, how to put more than 20% of my disposable income into assets that basically produce income. Now, a lot of people uh, have a poor mindset when it comes to basically budgeting and things like debt. A lot of people think of debt as getting into debt rather than potentially having a rich mindset around debt, which is purchasing debt. I want to buy more debt, please, because fundamentally, if you buy more debt, you're buying more assets. If you're buying more assets, you're basically leveraging to create more wealth. And so the 50-30-20 rule is a really, really good rule for anyone who perhaps is struggling to add more properties to their portfolio or even get into the market themselves. Now, I always teach the principle that if you're a really shit budgeter, if you spend your paycheck week by week, if you wake up at the end of a month's worth of work and you've got really just a few bob in the bank and you're struggling to get ahead in life, the 50-30-20 rule is for you. And this is what I recommend doing. Basically, uh, take 50% of your entire month's wage and go and give it to you know a very unlikely person who's going to blow it, give it to your mom or something to hide and learn to live on 50% of your income. Once you've done this for a month, if you took, for example, $5,000 out, which let's just say that was your uh, you know, monthly pay, and you put uh, $2,500 away to, to, to live your normal world, and the other $2,500, you, you know, I don't know, put it in your wallet as cash and learn not to even touch it, you will wake up after a month and it only takes a month and you'll end up in a place where you can budget for anything because we human beings tend to be able to work out how to live very simply when we have less of what we have coming in. It's just human nature. It is the survival nature of the beast, so to speak. So anyone who has a budgeting issue to me is just not approaching the 50-30-20 rule. Remember, 50% of what we earn really does need to go to, you know, food, shelter, uh, you know, electricity, that kind of thing. 30% of what we earn uh, can go to recreation and 20% of what we earn can go to investing, meaning 50% of what we earn should really, in the beginning, go to investing. And if that means, uh, you know, drinking wine out of a goon bag, then do it. 
Uh, that is the reality of it. And, uh, you know, quite often in Australia, we've got this thing about smashed avocados that uh, millennials are having too many eggs and smashed avocado breakfasts, spending $60, $70 on, on entertainment when if they put some money aside, they could potentially just fast track their economic position by, uh, you know, doing things a little bit tougher. So uh, the 50-30-20 rule, really good rule if you're into budgeting. My recommendation, put 50% of your income aside if you're yet to get into the marketplace and, uh, you know, learn to be a little bit of a uh, spendthrift, if that's the right word. Um, you know, learn how to, how to live without money. And once you return to a more normal state, you'll be uh, off and running. Now, the next rule is what I call the 75% rule or ARV rule. Now, this one relates to a lot of property investment where really a lot of property investors like the idea of adding value to real estate, buying uh, a property, buying a problem, working out how to renovate through that problem and recycling equity to buy more real estate. Now, the 75% rule is uh, is just the rule to apply when it comes to understanding this type of process of purchasing real estate. And sometimes it's known as after renovation valuation. It's just a methodology you need to consider if you are a type of property investor that you know, wants to get a little bit hands-on with property, wants to potentially renovate and uh, create equity out of real estate. For me, um, I'm a bit of an armchair investor, so I've certainly done this. I think it is a great rule. It makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people end up in a place where they want to be sort of renovators, but the mathematics never works out. They end up buying a property, spending a couple of hundred grand on the renovation and wondering why they just spent two years of their life making no money. Again, uh, for me, I prefer to use the gift of the gab to make money out of real estate, not necessarily a renovation uh, tool bag, but hey, each to their own. So basically... The idea is you uh, want to understand the rule 75, which, you know, fundamentally is the purchase price plus the renovation divided by 75%. And that becomes the price you want to pay for the real estate. So let's do some maths. Let's, uh, let's just uh, do some easy maths. I'll grab my calculator Let's say we're buying a $600,000 property. We want to do a $100,000 renovation. So we're now at $700,000. So that is our total uh, repair and renovation price we're paying uh, for the asset, right? So how much, uh, sorry, the asset would be worth. Let's start again. I've explained this wrong. Let's assume the property is on the market for $600,000 and that's its true value. Plus, the renovation is $100,000. So its true value is $700,000. How much should we pay for that property? Well, we divide that by 75%, 700,000. We would have to buy that $600,000 property for $525,000. Now, that again just is the buffer that one would need to do a renovation. So, quite often with renovating, people, I guess, think, well, I'll just pay any price because once I do the renovation, um, you know, I'm going to add value. Now, let's say, for example, that property which we purchased, which was on the market for $600,000, needs $100,000 renovation. And it's so we're in it for $700,000 as a total of 
retail price, but it's worth $800,000. We're going to make $100,000. We still have to buy that $600,000 property on the market for $525,000. Why? Because again, at some point we have to refinance, we have to pull equity out. If we're going to do a capital intensive project, which of course renovations are, in other words, you need to put more money into it. You have to, for example, come up with that $100,000 quite often without getting a loan on the property. You need to put that money into the deal to make the deal successful. As such, really renovation is about buying well, not as so much as so many people think about just buying anything. It is about buying well. And this is why I quite often think uh, so many people crash and burn as renovators because they just don't buy real estate well enough to budget for any of the challenges which tend to uh, you know, become very, very common in the renovation space. So use Rule 75. Uh, it's sometimes also known as Rule 70 depending uh, on – Again, um, you know, where you're buying, but generally from what I'm seeing in urban areas, you really, you want to basically take the purchase price, add the renovation price and divide it by 75% to find your strike price as to what the ceiling is for you to buy the real estate. Again, I'm a big believer in my Forex growth plan you buy well, you choose a good location, a right market, some really good behavioral logic and come back and renovate later. And for me, I tend to do, you know, 15 or 20 year renovations later on in the piece where I can add more value to my own assets without necessarily buying just a new asset and trying to add value to it. I mean, right now, if you went out in the real estate market and a property was worth $600,000 and you tried to pick it up for five twenty-five, dollars you probably would struggle because that $600,000 property, someone's likely to pay $630,000 for it, uh, given the market we're currently in. Really, uh, you know, rule six, which is rule, uh, the 75% rule, um, you know, it is a good rule, but it needs the market as a rule of thumb to be a little bit different to what it is at the moment. When it's a bit of a FOMO market, really is hard to buy real estate below market value. Um, not to say it can't be done, but certainly when there is a bit of a boom going on and the bull is running, it is certainly a little bit more difficult to get you know, the right price when it comes to real estate. The next rule, rule seven is, uh, or rule seven of today's show, if you like, is rule 20. Yes, rule 20. Rule 20 is the idea that we want to end up on income producing assets which match our lifestyle. So here's as simple as it works, right? If you're making $100,000 at the moment, and you're comfortably living off $100,000, you simply times that by 20, that would equal $2 million for you to continue to live off $100,000 annually, every year for the rest of your life, you're going to need $2 million worth of real estate paid off to produce that amount, rule 20. You simply... Take the number as to what you want to live off on a yearly basis. It could be $50,000. You apply rule 20, you multiply it by 20, $50,000, you're going to need a million dollars worth of real estate income producing paid off to punch out $50,000, rule 20. Now, again, if you are, you know, like money and you want lots of it, well, you just apply rule 20. So, you know, if it's, uh, I don't know, same concept, right? If you want $200,000 passive, you're going to need $4 million worth of real estate paid off. $300,000 passive per annum, you're going to need 
$6 million worth of real estate paid off. If you want uh, 500 grand a year, you're going to need $10 million worth of real estate paid off. So I'll leave you to determine what you want, but rule 20 is the rule that is commonly used when it comes to to real estate. And it's the rule I use. Um, I think it's uh, a pretty critical rule when it comes to understanding uh, where you want to go in life and how much you want to get at the end of your life from real estate, income producing real estate. The next rule uh, on today's show is rule eight. Yes, we're up to rule eight, which is the 30% rule. And this one relates to tenants. Yes, the 30% rule. Now, it is a common guideline in tenancy that a tenant really should not spend more than 30% of their income on rent. Now, we now live in a society where inequality is a real thing. And as such, I think the 30% rule is a critical rule. Too often I see a lot of tenants applying for properties and their income profile is so weak that really, uh, you know, they they are prepared now to spend almost like 40 or 50 or 60% of their income to become a tenant. Now, this is a real concern. And again, in the wrong suburbs, the wrong tenant profile, the the rents and the income are just out of whack. And for me, understanding this rule absolutely pushes me away from inequality. Now, if you can imagine if someone is um, earning, you know, uh, $60,000 a year as an income, under this rule, they could spend around... $1,500 a month on rent. Uh, think of it that way, right? And so, again, I think we need to understand that uh, rule, the 30% rule is a critical rule when it comes to, to understanding what tenants we want. This is why I, for example, tend to invest in these knowledge economies because the 30% rule is great because you end up finding tenants who are spending 15% of their income on rent, knowing that uh, they have such buying power, you can factor in really good rent increases into the future for that demographic. Smart economics. Again, the 30% rule is a critical rule that property investors need to understand. The next rule is a division. Yes, it is division 43, which is a depreciation rule. Division 43 or rule 43. Really, uh, rule 43 is just the idea that today, if you buy a brand new property, you can get full depreciation on the asset, on the uh, building of the property. So actually, uh, Rule 43 works for real estate built after 1987. You get depreciation on the building works. So uh, obviously, newer properties are going to get full depreciation. Um, if something's already 20 years old, it's already had depreciation, but we'll still get some more. Now, Rule 43 is really critical for many property investors because it creates extra income from the ability to, uh, you know, navigate through the tax system. And again, I think a lot of property investors fail to comprehend that really they can use the tax system to their advantage. And we often explain that as along the lines of we all go to work on a Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and for some of us, Saturday. But do we get to keep all the money we make during that work week? Well, the answer is no. Most people pay the tax system 
for the privilege of going to work and they really don't make any money until around midday Wednesday. Having assets which you can claim some expenses and depreciation on using Rule 43 or Division 43 allows you each year to claim back a proportion of your tax or proportion of the income you're giving the tax man. And again, if you have four or five assets, you are claiming 30, 40, sometimes $50,000 back in tax per annum. And of course, that allows you to fund uh, certainly asset creation, which is one of the benefits of certainly rule 43. The next rule, rule 10, which is rule 40 or division 40, which again is just a depreciation concept, is that brand new properties allow you to depreciate shuttles. Shuttles are just things like, you know, the carpet, uh, the kitchen, you know, fixtures, fittings, things like that, right? And again, it all adds up. And if you play your cards right and you don't overspend, you're going to end up in a good place if you can use these rules to eliminate some of the financial inefficiencies in your life. And when I study people, really the biggest financial inefficiency of most people that they don't take care of year by year is they pay way too much tax. They pay more tax than they should. As such, um, you know, they can eliminate that by following these rules. Now, eliminating tax is a critical part, I think, of becoming a successful property investment um, or investor. I don't think, you know, uh, buying a property just to be negatively geared makes any sense. It's, a, it's, it's not about that at all. It is about the idea that buildings carry depreciation allowance and if you can strike on that and get the right property, a more modern property, you're going to get better cash flow. It's as simple as that. So uh, really good rules, really good rules. Let's go to the 11th rule. This is known as the 50% rule. Yes, I think the 50% rule sucks but I'm going to talk to you about it anyway. The 50% rule is the rule of thumb on a first pass that a investment property, basically the gross rent is uh, going to be basically reduced by 50% because of the cost to maintain, manage, administrate and run the asset that is, uh, you know, there, right? So rule 11, the 50% rule. And this basically is just indicating that an ongoing operational expense for most real estate is around 50% of the rent collected. Now, personally, I look for real estate and most real estate, I find it's more like about 30%. And this is because really you do not have to factor in things like, uh, you know, future capital costs. You do not have to factor in, um, you know, major repairs. And the only reason the operating expenses are lower is because of the age of the property is not so run down. Now, again, the 50% rule is what a lot of people will explain that we should consider. Anything over 50%, the real estate would not stack up because it's too expensive to run. Personally, I prefer to see expenses, operating expenses, closer to 30%. And again, I seem to be very good at finding properties where really the operating costs are more like 30%. Just to be very clear, rule uh, the 50% rule does not include your mortgage costs, your interest repayments. It does not factor that in. So, you know, if you, for example, and, you know, I was looking at a property this morning, uh, it creates $26,000 in income 
and it costs $8,000 in operating costs to run that asset every year. It's about 30%, or a little bit less than 30%. Very, very good number. And again, for some reason, a lot of people, you know, explain, many experts explain that, you know, 50% is the number. And I'm probably more prone to look for a closer number to 30%. Because obviously, less operating costs uh, has a reflection on the cash flow. And, you know, for a lot of properties, they just need more rent because they've got higher operating costs. And for some real estate, you know, it's not about necessarily getting more rent for the asset because of the sweet spot of the operating costs. And obviously, if you can get more rent with low operating costs, that's the ultimate outcome for many property investors. So the 50% rule, it sucks. Uh, but certainly, once you factor in all the costs to run real estate, there are some costs, insurance, accounting, council fees, strata fees, you know, bank fees, rental management fees, maintenance, water rates, uh, new tenant fees, travel to see the real estate, you might find that you're closer to 50%. And that is normal. Uh, again, I try and look for real estate, which um, is a little bit less than that. And of course, uh, the final rule would, uh, you know, it would not be a show without this particular rule, which is the 1% rule or the 1% club. And as we know today in Australian real estate, in the investment circles, there's not a hell of a lot of people that have reached the milestone of being a minority in the investment arena. And that is someone who has been able to build a portfolio of real estate. You know, today there are plenty of people with an investment property, over a million people with just one investment property, but the numbers uh, tend to be a lot smaller when you get to three, four, five, six, seven investment properties and get into the 1% club. You know, today there are less than 19,000 people in Australia that own basically five or more properties. Think of it that way. Those people pay very little tax because of their depreciation allowances. They actually have set themselves up for, for example, Rule 20, where they're replacing their income and they're well on their way to more wealth and more financial freedom. The job for those people is really the job of what is the marathon of real estate, long distance investing, going the distance and uh, certainly ending up in a financial place. So the final rule, join the 1% Club I'm in the club. Come and hang out with me. It's a great club to be in. And uh, I think it's, uh, you know, probably one of the biggest rules to aim for when it comes to property investment. Now, I've got my, uh, I've got my quote. I'm ending the show. Don't ever fear to fail. Be inspired to succeed. Thanks for tuning in to The Urban Property Investor. I will catch you next time when we crack some more codes together. Uru. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.